Good morning, everybody. I uh, want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, as they're going, I just, as we were singing that song, uh, it's your breath in our lungs, and so we lift up our praise. And it just hit me that, think about that for a minute. It's his breath in our lungs. It is God who has provided the oxygen on a moment-by-moment -moment basis that goes into our lungs, and how do we use it? On Sunday morning for a little bit, we use it to praise him. We, we give it back to him. And isn't that kind of like our tithe, right? He asks us to, to offer him a tithe, a bit of what we have. He gives us a bunch, and he just says, give some back to me, and I'll use it for other purposes. So with this breath in our lungs, most of the time that air going in and out of our lungs is used for other things. We talk about other things. Uh, some of it's used for biological functions as we process it in our bodies. But this morning we gather and we take some of that breath and we say, Lord, we're going to offer this back to you. And this is how we want to do it. We want to praise you. We want to pray to you. We want to hear from your word. And so we're going to tithe our breath. How intimate, how personal that he would accept that from us. That just struck me this morning. I thought that was just a, a, a beautiful song in that moment. The other thing that you think about is in the Bible, breath, both in Hebrew and in Greek, is also the word for spirit, panuma. And so um, one of the things that we have are his breath in our lungs. We have his spirit in us, and his spirit comes into us. And what the Bible says is his spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. And so even that is his gift to us as we offer it back to him. We lift up his praise because he's given us a measure of his spirit. It's just a, a beautiful thing that happens on Sunday morning, if you really sit and think about it. We get to praise God. How wonderful is that? Um, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll praise God by studying his word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the breath I just took. Thank you for all the breaths I will take into the future. And Lord, I pray that I would learn to use more and more of that oxygen mixture that goes into my lungs to praise you. And so, Lord, would you accomplish that in all of our hearts? Lord, Holy Spirit, as you shed abroad in our hearts the love of God, I pray that you would um, impact us, that you would um, incline our hearts to desire to praise more. And, uh, Lord, would you be glorified in everything that we do. Um, Holy Spirit, we need you even now. You, um, you, you inspire us to uh, love God by giving us the love of God in our hearts, but also, Lord, you have inspired this very word that we're going to read. And so we need you to come and be with us so that we can see, so that we can understand. Lord, don't let me mess this up. Um, have your word be effective with your people. And may we all praise you more because of that. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this sermon is part two. Two weeks ago, we did the um, Masa and Meribah story and then uh, the Amalekites come and attack. And I said, that was humble leadership under God's authority, part one. This is the part two. And um, what I want to do is just kind of walk through the story and unpack it a little bit. And then I'll show you why I'm saying that they're linked. And then we'll, we'll try to unpack it a little bit and see how it applies to us. So let's just walk through the story real quick. Uh, it starts off with Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. That's a lot of names for one dude, but there's more. He, he's called Jethro. He's called Moses' father-in-law. He's called the priest of Midian. In Numbers 10, 29, and Judges 4, 11, his name is Hobab. Um, so he's, he's got multiple names, and um, that's just not an uncommon thing back then. 
but I just think it's wonderful how many descriptors we get of this man. So Midian is kind of off um, on the Sinai Peninsula, off on one side. That's where Moses had fled to. And when he left Egypt, remember, he, he killed an Egyptian, and then the Hebrews were like, you're going to kill us now? And so he takes off. He winds up in Midian, and that's where he met Hobab or, or Raul or uh, priest of Midian or Jethro. I'm going to stick with Jethro. It's just easier to say. Um, he meets Jethro's daughters, who are shepherdesses. And so they open up the well, and all the shepherds come over and chase him off. And, and Moses is like, that's not right. He's got a strong sense of justice, and so he chases them off, and he waters the flocks, and that's how he winds up being part of Jethro's family. So he's Jethro's son-in-law. So Jethro heard about all that God had done. What had God done so far? The plagues, these multiple plagues in Egypt, the, the, the uh, Passover, leading them out, passing through the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army in, in the uh, Red Sea, uh, defeating the Malachites. He's heard about all these things that God has done. And so he comes to Moses. And he, he reappears with Moses. And it says um, that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, and sent her home. So Moses, at some point, set Zipporah home. Now, when he left Midian, after he saw God in the burning bush, it says that he took his wife and his son, Gershom, and uh, and then later it says that she had to circumcise her sons, and we never met the second son. But at some point, they accompanied him back to Egypt. And now, suddenly, they're with their father-in-law again. So there's a lot of, of, obviously, speculation on when that could have happened. There's an ancient Jewish tradition that says they got to, the, to Egypt, and they said, well, who's this? Well, this is my wife. Well, what is she doing here? This is dangerous. We're slaves. She can't be here. And so he sent her away just as soon as they got there. So she did a round trip. Um, not seeing it in the Bible. Uh, another thought is, you know, the first couple of plagues, the first three plagues affected Israel as well. So maybe Moses sent her home at that point to protect her, uh, sent her back to Midian. Again, nothing in the text. Uh, another one was after the Amalekites attack, she runs home. And so now her, bro her, father, -in -law, or her father brings her back. And, and so that's possible. Um, how important is any of that? Yeah, um, it's speculation. Whatever point in time, and if it was important, Moses would have told us, Zipporah went back to her father with his two sons. And so we get this introduction to her two sons again. There's a lot of detail in this, isn't there? Um, Zipporah comes with her father along with her sons. The name of one is Gershom, for, she, for he said, I've been a sojourner in the land. So Gershom sounds like sojourner. And so that makes you stop and say, why are we being introduced to him again? Why are we given this again? I think Moses is trying to remind us of who he is. Why was he a sojourner in a foreign land? Because he killed an Egyptian. Because his own people rejected him. He didn't start out his career as this great, wonderful leader who was going to you know, be accepted by everybody. He, he started out with a deep sense of justice that was often misplaced. And so he, he headed to Midian. That's why he's a sojourner in a foreign land. But we also get the next part of the story now. Now we get to meet his other son. His other son, his name is Eleazar. And El is the name for God. That's El Elohim, El Shaddai. That's, that's often the name that, that is uh, generic used for God, like, like God. We use it for, for different gods. Um, the E, the I that's in there is my, it's the second person, personal, my, and ezer is the Hebrew word for help. So 
Uh, Ebenezer is a stone, Eben, of help, Ezer. So what his name means is, I have been, um, is, his name is, the God of my father is my help. So he is this stranger in a foreign land, and yet God is his help even there. So this is why one of those kind of little hints that Moses is really a good leader because he's saying, I'm not perfect. I'm a sojourner in this land. I'm not supposed to be here. I, I you know, had this problem, but God is my help. God is still with me. God is still helping me. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to the wilderness where they camped at the mountain of God. We'll come back and I'll unpack that mountain of God in a moment. Um, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father, am coming to you with your wife and sons. You see how much he's repeating this? There's just a ton of detail in here that he goes through very slowly. He keeps repeating stuff. He wants us to see, first of all, who Jethro is and who he is. He, he's married a foreign woman. He, is a so, he was a sojourner in a foreign land, and yet he's calling on God. And so this is repeated over and over again for us to remind us of who Moses is. So Jethro sends word, I'm coming. Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law. He bows down and kisses him, and they ask each other, how are you doing? How have you been? And um, so Moses sits down and tells him the whole story. Um, our religion is a religion of story, not just bare facts. Um, what is the gospel? The gospel is a story. Jesus came to earth. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He suffered. You're telling a story. Moses is doing the same thing here. How have you been? Let me tell you a story. We were slaves in Egypt, and God did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he let us out. So when he tells him the whole story, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done in Israel and how he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So Jethro hears the story of how God had been so faithful to Israel. He rejoices, and the next thing he does is he praises God. Blessed be the God who delivered you. And then he offers a sacrifice. So he, he offers burnt offerings and, and a, a sacrifice to God. So the burnt offering often meant that you would take a portion of the, the ram or the lamb, and you would put it on the altar, and you'd burn it up. That was God's portion. But sacrifices also meant you took a portion, you put it on the altar, and then you took the rest of it, and you cooked it, and you ate. And that's exactly what happens, is Jethro offers a sacrifice to God. He's a priest. He does this. But he's a Midianite. He can't offer worship to God. Well, yes, he can. Um, at this point, there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. He can, he can offer praise to God. He could do it anyway. just couldn't do it in the prescribed fashion. But he offers this sacrifice and then he hands some of the food to the elders of Israel. It says in, in the ESV, it says uh, they ate bread. Um, Jim read it, and he said they ate a meal. And I think that's really actually a good translation. Um, the word bread can sometimes, be, can sometimes be used to mean food in general. Or sometimes in, in the King James, you'll see meat. And it doesn't just mean meat, it means a whole meal. So I think that's what's going on here is they sat down and they ate the sacrificial meal. Because you've got to ask the question, where do they get bread? It wasn't that long ago they were whining because they didn't have any food. They, they, they were starving and they were going to die, and so God graciously provided them a bunch of quail, and then he said, every day I'm going to give you manna. So were they sitting down and eating the manna? I, I don't know. Manna was probably part of the meal. But the bigger thing was Jethro had showed up, and he had enough excess um, of his flock that he could sacrifice, and then he would sit down with these people and celebrate. They probably couldn't do that 
too often because there's a delicate balance between the number of people and the, the size of the herd. And if the herd shrinks too low, then it won't recover. And so they may have had a more delicate balance, but the priest of Midian shows up and he goes, I've got food, let's party. And they do it, not just you know, this reckless party, they're doing it to celebrate what God had done. They're rejoicing in how God had delivered them. And so when they sat down and they ate together, it was, a, it was a time to celebrate. God has delivered you. He is so wonderful. So one of the questions is, is Jethro a worshiper of Yahweh now? Um, it's not really clear. We don't know if he worshiped Yahweh exclusively. There's, there's a category where somebody would say, well, I recognize numerous gods, but I prefer this one, and I think this is the best one of all of them. So he could have moved Yahweh into that position. Or he could have said, there is no other God. The, the text isn't clear. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. What we see is one of the outside nations, not Israel, worshiping Yahweh. And it kind of gives us a, a, a little bit of hope. So that's the story. Then it says, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people. So the position of sitting was traditionally what a, what a judge would do. Um, when you read the rest of the, the Old Testament, you'll hear about the elders sitting in the city gates. And that was where you went to get justice or to have uh, a legal transaction recognized as you'd go to the city gates and the elders would be sitting there. And them sitting was a sign of their authority, a sign of, the, of their uh, position. And so when Moses goes out and sits down, it's a sign to the people that he is the judge. He is going to uh, bring um, justice to them. And so the people surround him from morning until evening and just ask question after question after question. He stole my sheep. How much does he owe me because he stole my sheep? I didn't steal his sheep. I don't know who took his sheep. I don't know where his sheep went. Um, I've got a sore. Does that mean that I'm not okay anymore? Um, how do I work this? So he's sitting there. He's answering everything from the mundane to the big. Everything comes to him. Uh, do you think everybody got heard that morning, that day, that afternoon, that evening? No, I'm sure people went home frustrated. I just, I just have one quick question for Moses. Just one simple question. Um, just as an aside, I, I worked security at a Star Trek convention a long time ago. And Gates McFadden, who is the uh, Dr. Crusher on The Next Generation, was signing autographs. And so there was a line that went all the way around this big ballroom. And me and a friend were standing behind her to make sure that the line went all the way around the line. And this one guy came charging up, and he, he was going to come up behind her. And we stepped in and said, what? I just have a question for her. So do all those people. Go get in line. <laughs> That's kind of what I think of with Moses here. Is it? But I just have one quick question, and Moses is dragging home. I'm done for the day. Just come back tomorrow. So he's worn out. And, and so what happens is Jethro looks and he says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And so Moses says, well, uh, because they come and they inquire of God. They come, come to me and they ask about the laws and the, and the statutes of God. And I, and I teach them that. I show them how this works. I, I explain it to them. And Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. What? Uh, Jethro, I'm providing justice. I'm providing interpretation of God's law. I'm helping people follow. How can that not be good? He's like, it's not good because you're going to kill yourself. You can't do this. If this is what your ministry is going to be, you will never leave. You will be there every day because you know what? Problems are going to keep coming up over and over again. And so he recommends to him, instead of that, why don't you set people over thousands and hundreds and tens and let them handle the minor issues and let them bring the big issues to you? Now, when he says over hundreds or thousands and hundreds and tens, those are military terms. 
And so there's some question in the text about, is this like a military function? Well, I think they would do, this would be the only way to do it, given that the situation they're in, right? They're out wandering in the desert. It's not like you could say, I'm going to appoint this judge over this city. You'd have to come up with some other way. So this is, you know, this is why military is organized in groups like that, is because they're mobile. And so this seems like a natural way to do it. And so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all he said. Moses chose men out of Israel, made them chiefs, and everything was great. Um, and then Moses' father-in-law departed and went back to his own country. The end. So what does this have to do with humble leadership? Um, let's kind of tie this all back together. Let's, let's, let's pull these things back together because um, there is a connection between at least chapter 18 and the war with the Amalekites in chapter 17. I don't know if you remember that. It's been a couple of weeks. The Amalekites saw the Israelites out in the desert, went and attacked them. Moses says, pick some guys, go fight them, and I'll be up on a hill. And so when he held the staff up, they won. When his arms drooped, they, they lost. Eventually, they overtook, overtook them. So this isn't me. This is a, a Jewish commentator noticed the connection between the two stories, between 18 and 17. Um, the Amalekites in chapter 17 came and attacked. Jethro comes and greets. In chapter 17, men are chosen to fight. Moses tells jo uh, uh, Joshua, go pick some men to go fight. And in chapter 18, men are chosen to judge. Um, it says in both cases, the next day. So Moses says, go pick some people. The next day, I'll go up on the hill. And in, um, in this story, Moses has this celebration with his father-in-law. The next day, he went out and judged. In both stories, Moses sits. Um, in the story with the war with the Amalekites, he couldn't stand up anymore, so they roll a rock underneath him so he can sit down. But in this one, he sits from the very beginning so that he can judge. Uh, both stories took all day. The war went back and forth all day. Moses is judging people all day. And in both of them, Moses is exhausted. He couldn't keep his arms up in, in the Amalekite war, and he can't. Um, he gets to the end of the day, he's just emotionally and intellectually exhausted after dealing with all of this. So they see a tight connection between chapter 17 and chapter 18. And I agree, but I go a little step further. I think there's a tight connection between the war with the Amalekites and with Massa and Meribah. Remember the story that happened right before it. People grumbled. Moses went out and struck a rock. Water came out. They were taken care of. Um, both Massa and Meribah and the war with the Amalekites take place in Rephidim. The people quarrel with Moses. The Amalekites fight with Israel. Both instances, he takes his staff in his hand. He's told specifically, take the staff in your hand. And with the story at Massa and Meribah, God says, I will go stand on the rock before you. And the story of the Amalekites, Moses sits on the rock. So the rock is, is, is part of that. So I think there's a connection between these three stories. And that's why I said the first part is, is part one and this story is part two, is because I think there's connections there. They're, they're woven connections. Um, another little thing to kind of prove that point, chapter 18 appears to be displaced. The story, it seems like it's out of order. Now, we would get upset about that because we want history to be chronological, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But this isn't necessarily exactly history. It's historic, but it's also Moses' teaching. And so he's going to move his story around. So why do I say that the story is displaced? Well, verse 5 says, they were encamped at the mountain of the Lord. That would be Mount Sinai. They, 
if you look over in chapter 19, uh, the first couple of verses say that they moved there, they went to Sinai, and they encamped at the mountain of the Lord. So they were at the mountain, and then they moved and camped there. It seems like that's out of order. Um, second of all, um, 18, or our chapter, verses 16 and 20, both say, make, ne- make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Well, God's laws will not be given until chapter 20 and onward. So that seems out of order. And then finally, the one that I think really makes the biggest impact is Numbers, chap- the end of Numbers 10 and the beginning of Numbers 11, and then Deuteronomy chapter 1 talks about appointing these judges after they've left Sinai. So it's possible that Moses is, is relating the story of Jethro that happened after Sinai, but putting it here for a reason. Um, and I think there is, a, there is a strong purpose for that because he's trying to tie together this is what leadership looks like. Now, remember I said two weeks ago, Moses is about to thunder God's law. He is about to go up on the mountain and talk face to face with God. He's going to come down the mountain and his face is going to glow because of the glory of God. And it would be really easy, especially for these Israelites, to idolize Moses, to think of him as something grand and great. Isn't Moses so wonderful? And so before Moses gets to that part of the story, he, he tells us the story of Matzah and Meribah, where he can't do anything. Lord, they're asking me to give them water. What am I supposed to do? And God's answer is, you go over to that rock. I'll be standing on it. You strike that rock, and I will provide the water. So he doesn't say, well, don't worry about it. Just stand there, and I'll go make water come out of a stone. He still uses Moses, but Moses is telling the story. I didn't do it because of my own strength or my own ability. I did it because God was standing on the rock. And then the, the war with the Amalekites, remember he held up that staff and his arms get tired. And when his arms come down, the, the, the armies lose. And when his arms go back up, the army wins. It, it, he was showing there that he is weak. He is normal. He's just a regular human being. He can't keep his hands up. He can't bear that staff. That staff was a symbol of God's judgment, but also of his deliverance. And he can't hold that up alone. He's not capable of doing it. And so the same thing with the story of Jethro. He can't judge the nation alone. He's not capable of doing it. And so I think to tie these together and kind of lead us into um, uh, an application of this story, I want to use a a metaphor. Every metaphor breaks down, so don't take this one too far. But I I think this kind of story kind of sums up all of these pieces and ties them together for us. So let me tell you this, this, let's call it a fable or a parable. It's not necessarily accurate, but... It works. So there was a country that was at peace and it was invaded. And it was invaded by some of the worst characters you've ever heard of. They were terrible, destructive, horrible. And so the commanders of the people gather the the citizens and say, we have to expel these people from our territory. They have to go. They're, They're ruining everything. And so they start marching out to meet the enemy. And as they're marching out, they get a ways out, and they run out of food. They, they didn't plan ahead well enough. They couldn't provide. And as they're getting desperate, and they're beginning to wonder, and the commanders are saying, no, hold on, hold on, it'll be okay, suddenly word comes from the king. I've hidden some food here for you. I've given you provisions. And so they stop, and they look, and here's the provision. The king had already planned ahead. He had already done this for him. So the, the army is provisioned, and they're ready to go. So they start marching on. They find out where the enemy is. An enemy is on this high hill, 
And at the top of this high hill is a bunch of woods, there's a bunch of trees, there's rocks, there's a spring, everything this army would need, and they're hidden up on top of that hill. So the commanders tell the army, let's surround this hill, and at our word, we'll charge up the hill and we'll go get them. So as they start charging the hill, suddenly raining from down from the top of the hill are arrows and stones and rocks, and they can't get close. Every time they get within the range of the arrows, they wind up getting decimated, so they back off. So, well, why don't we try that? We'll try shooting some arrows. They're too high up. They can't get the arrows up. There's no way they can even touch this enemy. And this enemy is ruining their territory. So they're stuck. They're just stuck. And the army gets grumbling and complaining and worried. And how are we going to do this? And the commanders are trying to hold them together. Just stand still. Wait. Hold on. When suddenly they see one person walk out from their ranks. And as they're looking, they're like, who is that? And some of the commanders recognize, that's the prince. That's our prince, but he's dressed like a squire. He's not dressed in, in armor or anything, and he's going to go up and he's going to attack these people? But the army stands and watches as the prince nobly marches towards the hill, and suddenly the rocks and the arrows start coming, and for some reason not one of them touches him. He keeps walking, and the rocks are missing, the arrows are hitting everywhere but him, until there's a thunder from above, and then one of the arrows pierces him, and he dies falls down dead just at the foothill of the hill. He's about ready to ascend the hill, and he's, he's executed. The commanders scramble. Some of them take off in fear and run. The army is, is just scattered everywhere. But a couple of days later, some women bring word. The, commander, the prince's body's missing. He's not there anymore. And so they begin to reassemble, and they come back to the hill to see, maybe we can attack now, has, has the bad guys left? When one of the women yell, look! coming down the mountain and coming down the hill is all of their enemies marching down the hill in chains defeated and as the, they did, they appear down the hill suddenly at the back is their glorious prince alive he's alive and he's defeated all of these enemies single-handedly and leading them forward in chains they're beaten and so as the army is standing there and, and this defeated foe comes marching in front of them, they're they able to recognize these enemies. Look, here's jealousy. Jealousy comes marching right in front of them. And jealousy is criticizing everybody. It's your fault. I should be with you guys. You should be over here. I, shouldn't, I didn't do anything wrong. It's all your fault. But he can't touch them. All he can do is bark. Sexual immorality. She comes down in this slinky robe and... and all of a sudden, as they're looking, they go, you know what? She's not quite as pretty as I remember. I think she's got some wrinkles, and there's some gray in her hair. She's not as, as and standing next to the prince, she's nothing. She's just, I don't know why I ever found her beautiful. And she saunters on. Greed comes clutching all of his stuff to his chest. And when they look, they, they realize, those are really stupid things you're holding on to. The king has defeated you. How, how can you hold on to those things? But greed is holding on to him and, and grumbling as he goes. Pride is behind greed. His chiseled chin, his, his beautiful face, hung slumped down on his boastful chest, and he's just defeated. He, he can't do anything. He just saunters along as well. Then the most terrifying beast, the most horrible thing you've ever seen comes, and it's hell. And hell is coming along on a chain, and hell occasionally snatches up somebody, but he can't even touch the army. He can't get anywhere near the army. And then the last one that comes behind him is death. This, this, this figure that they were most terrified of, death is walking there in chains. 
And the most amazing thing is when death gets to where he's going, he now is the doorkeeper to the king's palace. He's the one who lets people in. He used to terrify them because he would snatch people up and run away with them. And now he's ushering people into the king's presence. And so the commanders are all standing and they're watching and they're just amazed at what they're seeing. So as, as this is coming to its fruition, there comes a point where the prince judges everyone. He judges all of the kingdom. But the commanders are also given a role in the judgment as well. They get the simple tasks. They get the simple cases. The, the prince answers the tough ones, answers the really hard ones. So here's what's going on is when we go back to Massa and Meribah, remember what I said Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, that stone is Christ. So that provision that was given was from the king. It was from God. It was by Jesus. Jesus is the one who provided them what they needed in the wilderness. And then when they get to the war with the Amalekites, that rod that, that Moses wasn't able to hold up, once it was held up, they were able to triumph over their enemies. But what it's showing is there's only one person who could bear the weight of judgment and guarantee deliverance, and that was Jesus Christ. He's the one who bore our sin. He's the one who gives us deliverance. He was the only one that could do it. Moses can tell us about it, but he can't stand and hold it up himself. Only God could do that. Only Jesus could. And then when it comes time for judgment, when, when we see the judgment that he's going to render to Israel, who is Jesus going to judge? The Bible tells us in um, 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, he will judge everyone. So what's our role? We'll, well, we'll be judged, but the Bible says that we will judge as well. But you see, Jesus is going to take the tough cases. He's going to judge the living and the dead. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we, were, we are to judge angels? So how hard is it for us to judge an angel? Think about that. So demons are fallen angels. Satan is a fallen angel. So a, 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 an angel appears before you. What's your name? Okay, what'd you do? Oh, you know, I went around the earth possessing people, um, lying to them, make them worship, worship false gods, uh, pretending to do miracles. Oh, that's a tough case. Okay, you go to hell. Um, next, what did you do? Oh, dude, I'm really proud of this. I was one of the angels that, that Ezekiel saw. Remember when Ezekiel saw? Oh, cool. Okay, well, you're a good angel. You go to heaven. How hard is that going to be for us to judge? We'll get the simple cases. But Jesus gets to judge the living and the dead. He's going to look at a person who may have externally been shiny, squeaky clean, but their heart is full of hatred and jealousy and vinegar. And he will be able to judge them and say, I know what you really are like. I have seen your secret inside heart. I, I know what you really mean. So he gets the hard cases. We get the easy ones. All we got to do is judge angels, judge the world. Hey, tree, how did you do? Oh, you're a tree. Good. Yay. <laughs> we don't have the hard jobs, but we are involved in the judgment. And so what Moses wants us to see, what he wants us to put our arms all around here is there is a role for the commanders. Were the commanders in this battle unimportant? Could they have done without commanders? No, they needed somebody to rally the troops. They needed somebody to keep the troops together. They needed somebody to remind them of who their enemy was, to lead them to where the enemy was, that kind of stuff. At the end of the battle, who do they praise? Do they turn to their commander and go, oh, you are the best? They look to the prince. 
If the commander's been doing his job well, he says, look at the prince. The prince is the one who died. The prince is the one who ascended the hill. The prince is the one that put all the bad guys in chains. The prince is the one that led them down in front of us. The prince is the one who will judge everybody. We get to take the easy cases. So a good and a wise commander is going to point to the prince and not draw attention to himself. And so that's what I think Moses is trying to do for us in this. And I hope we didn't get too far afield with the metaphor, but I think that's a good way to put this, is Moses is saying, I couldn't make water come out of a rock. Only God could do that. I couldn't defeat the Amalekites. I didn't have a wise and brilliant battle strategy. My battle plan was I'm going to hold up a piece of wood and stand on a hill. That's my battle plan. God's going to give you victory. And so when Jethro shows up, he says, you can't judge everybody. You don't have the capacity to do it. Moses is reminding everybody, I can't do this alone. I am not sufficient. Don't look to me. Look to God who's going to do all of these things. He's going to fit us with people who can handle these jobs that are being doled out. So when we come to chapter 19, chapter 20, and on, and we talk about the law, and Moses figures very prominently, picture in your mind a highly decorated military commander. He, he is, a, the Bible portrays him as a strong man of God. Um, what we hear in Hebrews is he was a servant in God's house. And the servant, he wasn't like scrubbing floors. He was the chief butler. He was the high man. But even then, he's pointing to the Lord of the manor and saying, it's the son. It's not about me. So let's not forget that. And, and if we can apply it locally, we have leaders in the church. We have a form of leadership in the church. We would be chaotic without a form of leadership. But ultimately, it's not about how wonderful your elders are. Just as an aside, your elders are wonderful. But that's not the point. The point is, if your elders are wonderful, all of them are pointing to Jesus and saying, it's about Jesus. And my job, if I'm doing it faithfully, is not to lead you to me, but to him. So that's what, a, that's what we're looking for in good leadership. It applied for Moses. It applies for us. There is a need for leadership. But that leadership has to be humble. And to be humble is to say, I see who God is, and I understand who I am in front of God. And then under God's rules, under God's um, justice, under his way of doing things, we say that's what we want everyone to conform to. That's where we're going. That's what we're aiming for. And so next week, we get to Mount Sinai. And then the week after, we get to the Ten Commandments. So the law is coming. But before we get there, let's make sure we have Moses in the right position so we don't worship Moses. Um, I think that was probably part of the problem in first century Judaism is um, we, we want Moses. It was like, but listen to Moses. Moses himself says it's about God. It's not about me. And, and you don't listen to Moses. You, you say you're Moses' disciple, but you don't listen to him. So the problem is real. Human hearts tend to... Can you see God? You can't see God. He's invisible. We sang that. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. You can't see him. So we want to see this wonderful person. And so we can wind up worshiping the things we see when the ultimate reality is what we can't see. So we have to be careful not to get too attached to our leaders. Um, we all come with an expiration date. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed that. All the great leaders throughout church history had an expiration date. Um, there was only one great leader who is still alive, 
and, and still ruling. He's on a throne, and you can't see him yet. But he's going to come down that mountain, and he's going to render judgment. And so when he comes, our hope is the whole group of us, the whole army, will be standing and cheering together and looking to our leader and saying, that's what we were waiting for. And the best that would happen is one of the, the troops would turn to their commander and say, thank you. Thank you for leading me that way. Not, you're the most wonderful thing ever. It's just, you're so beautiful. You're so wonderful. That would be an utter failure. So when we get to the law, Moses is going to thunder. Moses is going to come on strong. But Moses wants us to know beforehand, he's, his feet are clay. He's just like us. He's a normal person like us. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I'm grateful that Moses was the humble leader who would write these chapters in order to portray himself as not that great, as, as not the ultimate. Um, Lord, what a, what a great leader to do that, to, say, to, to get people to look away from him, to look past him, to look over his shoulder and see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, to see the tabernacle, to see the Lord come and meet with his people. Uh, that's the leader who's, who's pointing that way. And so thank you that Moses has given us this picture. And Lord, I pray for our leadership in this church, um, for the elders that we would lead in, in a similar way, uh, for the deacons that they would serve in a similar way. And, and Lord, as we understand church membership to be a function of leadership, I pray that all our, our church members would be doing the same thing, would be leading in a way that draws us not to themselves, not to uh, any particular personality, but ultimately to God and Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, have mercy on us and lead us like that so that we will engage the foe that you've defeated and finish the cleaning up operation um, that you've given us to do to draw more people to yourself. And, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, our, our prince, our high commander, and our savior. Amen.